Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Welcome to episode 45. In today's show, we will conclude the interview with Rob May. Rob is a general partner at PJC, an early-stage venture capital firm focused on investing in, supporting, and building relationships with entrepreneurs who are creating the future. His expertise is in the areas of AI, hardware, B2B, and software as a service. Before joining PJC, Rob was the co-founder and CEO of Tala, an AI and automation platform transforming the way businesses deliver customer support. As an angel investor, he made over 70 early-stage AI investments, and I strongly recommend his leading newsletter on artificial intelligence called Inside AI. Last week, we talked about how Rob got into the field of venture capital, because he started out as an engineer designing chips, and not a lot of engineers end up as venture capitalists, so I was particularly interested to find out how that happened to Rob. We also talked about brain-machine interfaces, which I was a little surprised to find out are already on Rob's radar. And we talked some about digital assistants, like the ones he built at Tala. We'll talk more about those in the second half of the interview coming up, connecting them with effective computing. And we'll talk about what AI startups should and shouldn't be doing. That and more as we get back to Rob May. I can hear that your mind is tuned to range over these huge areas. You're talking there about social safeguards and protection against Six Sigma events. And it reminds me that we were talking before we started the recording here about the interdisciplinary nature of artificial intelligence and how that attracted you. In the work that you do with startups in AI, we're talking about something that's been characterized as the new electricity. And so there's two ways that that could show up. It could be AI as a service. A company says, we're providing AI to, doesn't matter what, healthcare, accounting, military, same tool, different applications. Or is it more applied AI? Does one of those interest you more than the other? Well, I'm a pragmatist at heart. And so while I like debating a lot of the deep questions about the world, and I do think that's fun, ultimately, I like seeing things come to life a little bit more. And so I think I'm much more on the applied AI side. I read a lot of the philosophy of AI and cognitive science, philosophy of mind. I'm a big fan of you know Daniel Dennett and Doug Hofstetter and all these people that we've all probably read all the books. And But I really like building and making things and seeing them come to life. And I like investing at that crossover point. And so I follow a lot of what's going on theoretically, deep, big questions, but I'm always looking for what's next to cross over and become reality. And that's, I'm a CEO of two companies, but I wouldn't say I'm highly operational. I'm a more strategic sort of integrated thinker. I was more business development and sales focused as a CEO than, you know, I'm not the guy that wants to figure out how the logistics work for whatever thing we're doing. And so, yeah, so I think the applied AI is, is probably where I spend a lot more time. Okay. And so talking about then things that are getting ready to cross over, and we were talking earlier about chatbots and natural language processing, what about effective computing? Is that ready to take off emotional interpretation and expression? 
Yeah. You know, I don't know. I know the um, Rana El Kalyubi from Affectiva is a good friend of mine, and they've had a lot of success with it and are using it a lot in situations related to driving and telling if somebody's tired or angry or maybe shouldn't be driving. But I also think it depends on how far you want to take it. And there's been some studies that show that maybe our emotions aren't always as accurately read as we think. And you have this interaction where people start to adapt to things around them, right? So you look at cell phones over the last 20 years and people would have them, but not keep them on them all the time. And now we do everything on them, right? And we're always hunched over and we're typing with our thumbs. And and so I think you risk these scenarios where as effective computing becomes more prevalent, people start to fake their emotions in ways to tell the computers something that like, maybe for example, a computer learns that if you seem to be getting mad, it should give you a refund. So people fake getting mad when they learn that. So they'll get more refunds, right? It's like the voice trees. Now, you know, they put these voice phone trees in place so that they'll be more efficient and you can find what you want. And what do a lot of us do? We get on and we just start pressing zero, right? Just zero, like give me a human. I know my problem needs a human. And so I think it's definitely ready for some early applications, but be interesting to see how successful it is when it's rolled out at scale. I know there's a whole site called Get Human, which tells you the fastest way to get past the phone tree to a a human for all different kinds of companies. Yeah, it's run out of Boston, here where I am. I know one of them. Oh, cool. I've used it quite a few times. In order for a consumer-facing AI to be more valuable, we want it to understand us more. And a lot of the frustration comes with it doesn't have the information to do that. Like, say, we're just having a moment with one of our children, and teachable moment, things are intense, and Alexa perks up to say a package has arrived or something, or thinks she heard her name, and yada, 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 were you, you know, it's like, stop, this is not the time. Yeah. And was not reading our emotions, it hasn't been told to do that. But a lot of what we would want to enable that kind of know your customer on steroids through AI would require data gathering that we also say, whoa, you can't know that much about me. Every time we find out how much Facebook or Apple or Google knows about us or have it rubbed in our faces, we're like, oh my God, let's march on Congress. Is that a paradox? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I see so many startups that are trying to raise money that have these ideas that you know people should take back control of their data and they should care more about privacy. But the problem is, to improve your privacy and to do that kind of stuff, you have to introduce a little bit of friction a lot of times into the system. If you want to increase security and privacy, you can turn on two-factor authentication for all your applications. Well, now it means you got to get a text message every time you log into something. And it's going to take you eight to 10 seconds longer. And people don't want that. They just, they, you know, they don't even want to log out. They just want to stay logged in, which is totally insecure. <laughs> and so I think our desire for privacy and safety and security is a little more cognitive and our desire for convenience is a little more emotional. And so I think the desire for convenience keeps winning. But that's also part of the reason that I think some of this is going to have to be legislated because there are certain situations where core human emotions can be manipulated. Gambling, fast food, you know, these kinds of things where if the government doesn't step in, the market will make it a race to the bottom, right? And so while in general, I'm not in favor of heavy government regulation of technology, I do think this is a place where I think Europe has really led the way with GDPR and some of the stuff that they, you know, a right to be forgotten and some of their laws. And I think I'd like to see us do more of that in the United States. And I'd like to see more movement towards worldwide treaties about how we treat data, personal privacy data, cross-border and all that kind of stuff, because it's really complicated right now. 
Are there areas where you see startups wanting to go that your advice would be in general, no, don't go there for whatever reason? Oh, definitely. There are a handful of problems that people always want to solve that sound like good ideas that never work because of other structures. So I can't tell you how many companies I've seen that have done this like, well, look, here's how we'll fix advertising online. We're just going to, it's micropayments for content. So you want to read this article, you pay a, you know, half of a penny and can just do that. And those things never seem to work because you have a scale problem, right? You have to get them out everywhere before they're, they're mm-hmm. valuable. And then people want transparency. And so there, you know, I've seen so many of these sites, Secret was one of these where you could post stuff, you could tell truths about people. I've seen sites where people are like, honest, real feedback. And, but anonymity always breaks these systems and they end up like people don't really, like it hurts to get real feedback a lot of times. Like society's kind of built on lying to each other to some extent, right? About to, to, to maintain social ties. And so there's some things like that, the own your own data, privacy, have a little bucket that you share with Facebook when you want to be advertised to is one. Yeah, so we see a lot of these and then they, those are very specific. They also come in conceptual flavors, right? Like super technical people, think about a lot of things that they think other people would like that other people wouldn't like and sort of try to build some of those companies as well. So yeah, you know, we're always dealing with kind of those paradoxes of what people think should exist, human tendencies that are pitted against each other and what's ultimately really scalable and possible as a business model. What have people in startups not addressed that you would love to see someone get into? Well, so let me take that from a problem space and a technical space. I think from a technical space, I would love to see more companies working on AI that's not neural network driven. So I've seen this in academia, which is you can look at Bayesian analysis, symbolic logic processing, evolutionary algorithms. There are other forms of AI. And I'm not aware of many companies that are using those in sort of production systems for things. We're starting to get there. I've seen some work at IBM, for example, on using neural networks with symbolic logic, maybe use neural networks to generate symbolic logic. And then symbolic logic makes it easier to do logic and reasoning and higher order functions that neural networks can't currently do. So I think that's interesting. I'd like to see more people working on that tech. I've seen a few, but there's not a lot of startups doing it. And then from a problem space perspective, I think there's a bunch of interesting problems to solve. One that may or may not end up with an AI solution is I think B2B buying is broken, right? So when you have a new type of software today and you want to sell it, you make a lot of content, you put it online, but you do a lot of cold emails and cold calling and everything else and you spam people and it's annoying, but people do need to be aware of products and they do need to buy them. And, you know, I used to go to this buyer's conference, I think it was called the CIO forum or something like that. And, you know, they would invite 150 sort of CIOs and they would pay for them to come and they would say, look, you're going to hear from your peers. We're going to have a fun poker night. You're going to play golf and you're going to listen to eight pitches, half hour pitches from companies. And you would ask these CIOs, you know, these are, you know, heads of companies and cities and state governments and things like that. And it's like, why did you come to this thing for two days to get pitched? And they're like, well, I have a good time and I get to see a bunch of people I don't normally see. And I also don't mind the pitches. Like I, I need to buy stuff and I want to know what's out there. I just, and it's better than getting 30 phone calls a day from random people. And so seems like there should be some way for somebody to get in and fix that. Like know what you actually need and screen stuff so that you only actually get pitched and only take pitches on stuff you're really in the market to buy or would really be useful for your company. I mean, you know, I started two SaaS companies and we would get pitched on things like equipment leasing. Like we don't lease any equipment. Like what would I use this for? So I think that's an interesting problem. And then with respect to AI, I think most of the most interesting issues are around edge computing right now because People are predicting that this will be bigger than cloud computing. You're going to put machine learning models in every device. Every camera is going to have a facial recognition model or something else. Uh, Things are going to have voice recognition in them. 
And as these models get better and more accurate, they do it by getting bigger typically. So how do you compress these models that run on these large server side chips and put them on very small, cheap microcontrollers? Because it's not like if I have a camera that is connected outside of my house and it's trying to look for faces of certain people and identify if it's my family member or not, right? Should I let them in or something like that? It's not cost effective to send that up five times a second back up to the clouds for inference and whatever. You know, is there a person in there or not? Like you have to do that inference down on the camera. It's more economically feasible. Hmm. But putting that model to the camera is hard depending on the hardware that you're using without driving the cost of the camera up, right? I mean, I'm not going to pay $700 for a video camera that previously I could get for $89 mounted on in front of my house. So... I really have been looking at a lot of companies that are working on how to either build those models with less data by pruning the data sets or compressing the models on the other side hmm. so that they can fit on these things or, or, or just different, different tools like that. So I really think the electronic design tools around neural network models going into production are a big place with a lot of problems to fix. That's interesting. I think the conventional wisdom would be that 5G plus Starlink and eventual 6G with terabit speed would say that you could go to the cloud cheaply. Yeah, well, you're still going to have issues. Uh, you're still going to have latency for some issues. So if you're talking 20 milliseconds, 100 milliseconds in an autonomous vehicle, that might matter, right? Yes. I think you're still going to have cost issues and privacy issues and internet connectivity issues. There's still going to be a lot of reasons to push this stuff to the edge. True. Are we in an AI bubble? Do you think at some point this is going to pop the way of the dot-com and we'll be going, wow, that was like bell-bottoms we, 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 or cat memes. We were a little carried away with ourselves there. Do you have companies come to you with an AI label on what they're doing and you look at it and you go, dude, that's just linear regression. You can't call that AI. Yeah, we, uh, so I'll say yes and no. I think we are in an AI bubble in the sense that there are a lot of things being pitched as AI that aren't AI. As intelligence becomes part of everything, you know, I think there are, it'll just become the norm. It's like, like nobody says like we're an internet company, right, anymore because every company has to be on the internet. I do think we've overinvested in particularly a lot of the tools and platforms and things like that from an AI perspective. But, you know, that overinvestment's good, right? It lays the groundwork. I mean, it's a lot of speculation, but it lays the groundwork for the real use cases to come later. But I don't think it's necessarily bubbly in the sense that it's going to pop and go away because you've seen a lot of real use cases and real improvements, particularly in the big tech companies, right? What Tesla's done, what Amazon's done, what Google's done, Microsoft, Apple, even places you hear less about like Salesforce and Oracle are doing a lot with AI. It's making a lot of things better and it's really rolling out. And so AI engineers aren't going away. Machine learning engineers, um, the technologies are going to keep moving forward. But yeah, there's too many companies in some spaces. You know, the MLOps space is a perfect example where, you know, everybody saw the rise of DevOps and some of these companies that got big, you know, Splunk and Datadog and people and everybody said, wow, you know, we, we want to have the MLOps version of this where instead of looking at all the server and compute stuff, we're looking at the data and managing the data flows and everything around the models. And there's so many companies in that space. We haven't, at PJC, we haven't made a bet because I don't know how you tell who's going to win. I think it's going to be a little bit of randomness and luck and who raises the most money first. And so there's definitely some bubbly subgenres of AI for sure. So you've got this newsletter, Inside AI, with a very large base of subscribers, very successful. That's how I first learned about you. What was your goal in establishing that? What has it done for you? Yeah, so I started that in 2015 because my first company was a cloud security and backup company and I needed to rebrand myself as an AI guy if I was going to start an AI company and do AI investing, which is most of my angel investing. So before I joined PJC, I made 74 angel investments and probably 60, 65 of them were AI focused. So if I was going to do that, I was thinking about how do I get deal flow and how do I rebrand myself? 
2015, I started writing. The newsletter was originally called Technically Sentient. And um, when it got to about two or 3,000 subscribers, Jason Kalkanis, who's a friend of mine, was doing the inside.com thing. And he said, hey, we want to launch an AI newsletter. I love yours. Like, let's just put it on, put up here. You can have full editorial control. So I put it there. And I was writing every other week. And then I started writing weekly commentary. And we changed the name to Inside AI. They grew it to 10,000 subscribers in just a matter of weeks, right? And then now it's got about 30,000 subscribers. It's one of their, I think it's the newsletter. I think they have a couple hundred newsletters and mine has the highest open rate. And then, you know, about a year and a half ago, we added somebody who would write the news daily. And I still just sort of focus on the weekend commentary. So yeah, so it's cool. That's why I did it. It's very scalable for me to send that. Most of the people that I personally know read it. They feel like they hear from me all the time. And so I, time like COVID when I can't have coffee, our relationship maybe feels closer from their perspective, when I reach out to say hi, then it otherwise would. And I also recently have started writing on Substack at investinginai.substack.com. And that's where I'm going to write more about the, just the investing side of some of this stuff, you know, business models and markets and things like that. So I like to write mainly just to, it helps me with what I think. I mean, I really do it for me more than the readers. Mm -hmm. I know what you mean. I wasn't originally planning to write a book when I started this. I was going to go to videos and talks, but I was having so much trouble ordering stuff that I thought, well, I'm going to write this down so that I'm forced to figure out what order to explain it. And, and then I thought, oh, this, this really should, should go out as a book. Yeah. How should people keep up with what you're doing and find more about your different ventures and publications? Yeah. So the best thing would be, you know, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm just Rob May, uh, R-O-B-M-A-Y, or investinginai.substack.com is probably the place where you'll see the most stuff about me personally and some of that. Any advice for someone starting out in your field, if you're mentoring them? Well, if you want to get into venture capital, it's really hard, right? You either have to be a successful CEO a couple of times or a successful entrepreneur, or you have to work your way up a very long ladder from associate analysts, principal to a partner. So um, I would just encourage people, whatever field you're in, try to stand out, do something different, write blog, podcasts, organize meetups when COVID's over, like whatever you can do to just rise above the rest a little bit. And it's hard. You know, I, I wrote Inside AI when it was when it got started. I mean, six months into it, I had like 150 people read it, right? And it seems very depressing, but a lot of this is just keeping at these things, right? Consistency mm -hmm. and discipline and all that takes you a long way. How would you like AI to change your life in 10 years? Well, I would really love something that recorded everything I did all day. And I could ask it questions like, hey, when I was talking to my friend Steve the other day and he mentioned that restaurant... And that made me think about that dish that I had. Like, what was that? Like, th those are the kinds of questions that I can never remember the yeah. answer to. So I'd love to have something like that, or I'd love to see AI revamp education. I think people learn so differently and the educational system has been so homogenous. And I think to be able to tailor education to every child so that they can learn at the appropriate sort of pace and the things that are make things interesting to them, I think could really, really change the world. Mm, that's a great place to end this. Rob May, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was fun. That's the end of the interview. I hope you're having as much fun with these interviews as I am because I find our guests utterly fascinating. And I wish I could talk with them for much longer than the hour we typically get to spend together. Maybe one day we'll be able to make something like that happen, like say a panel discussion or an all-day workshop or a live lecture series. Which reminds me that if you want to see anything like that happen, it all depends on listeners. So this is me telling you to share the show and tell your friends about it and give us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you're listening to us. Now, I suck at marketing, so I don't say this nearly as often as a lot of podcast hosts do. 
but it really does make a difference. Our listener base continues to grow with every show, and that's thanks to your sharing about us, which all helps to win the battle for attention. In today's news ripped from the headlines about AI, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, or NHTSA, announced that it has opened 27 investigations into crashes of Tesla cars. NHTSA said in July that its, quote, special crash investigations team has looked into 19 crashes involving Tesla vehicles where it was believed some form of advanced driver assistance system was engaged at the time of the incident, end quote. In one example... Michigan State Police said a parked patrol car was struck by a Tesla apparently in autopilot mode while investigating a traffic crash near Lansing on Interstate 96. No one was injured, and the 22-year-old Tesla driver was issued traffic citations. So this is important, and it's going to be hard to parse out what's important and what isn't, because every incident involving autonomous vehicles is going to get a huge amount of tension. Uh, AV runs over a cat, it's going to be headline news. An AV ran over a, a person outside Tempe, Arizona, and Uber stopped that testing. Now, there are 30,000 people killed every year by traffic accidents in the United States alone, and they don't get hardly any attention. So are we being unfair to the autonomous vehicles? Well, certainly they're going to get more than their fair share of attention because they're new and we don't know what they're going to do. On the other hand, they're driving a lot less than human drivers are right now. So really, we have to look at statistics to find out whether the attention that they're getting for these crashes is warranted. Elon Musk has said that Teslas are already safer than human drivers, but we need some kind of analysis to tell us whether that's true and how true it is. The entire point of making autonomous vehicles is to reduce that 30,000 a year figure by at least 90%. Otherwise, it's just not worth the billions that are being spent on that by Tesla and many other companies. This may create a catch-22 in that the attention that those vehicles get from NHTSA and especially the media may defeat the introduction of them in wide-scale form even after they become generally safer than human drivers. But I'm thinking that what may unwedge that is insurance companies because they will deal in data you can bet that they already know just how much safer or less safer AVs are than human drivers. And as soon as that equation comes out on a side that works for their underwriters, they will push this forward because they stand to make money off the widespread use of autonomous vehicles as soon as they are significantly safer than human drivers. Next week, I'll be talking with Rajiv Malhotra, who has a new book, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Power, Five Battlegrounds, which is particularly focused on the impact of AI on the economy and social framework of developing countries like India. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles 
at AINU.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U dot net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.